Thank you very, all very much for coming. Um, I'll just introduce myself. My name is Paul Williams. I'm Professor of Operational Research here. And my role is to introduce another Professor of Operational Research, or as they say in America, Operations Research. So John Hooker is Professor of Operations Research at the Tepper School for Business in Carnegie Mellon University, which is one of the top um, management schools in the United States. Um, but he's also Professor of Business Ethics. Uh, business Ethics is a, a topic that I would like to see us introduce eventually into the emerging new management school here. It seems to me an ex extremely important subject. Uh, Professor um, Hooker has a PhD both in management science, which is another name for operational research in my opinion, and also he's done another PhD in philosophy, um, hence his broad interest. He's published very widely in operational research, in business ethics, and in cross-cultural issues, which is more akin to what he will be talking about tonight. Um, among his seven books, I think, one book, Working Across Cultures, is widely used, um, widely used across the world, and in, in, in particularly in business courses. Um, Professor Hooker is visiting us here at LSE until July. Um, he's working primarily with myself and, and colleagues on discrete optimization problems, sometimes known as integer programming, extension of linear programming, and links with logic, hence his interest with me and with my colleagues, the overlap between philosophy, this is fairly formal philosophy, and operational research, and in particular, looking at resource allocation models, and more recently, trying to introduce a notion of fairness into resource allocation models. And we've been talking the last couple of days, particularly areas like the health service, for example, when you're trying to allocate resources. But anyway, I shouldn't be talking about this. This is the sort of thing I'm interested in, probably not the sort of thing you're interested in. Um, today, he's going to talk to the title above. Um, John will talk for about 40 minutes, and then we'll take as many questions, you know, 20, 20 minutes, half an hour, as, are, as we need. So I'm very pleased to introduce Professor Booker to talk about this topic. Well, thanks very much, Paul. I have to begin by making sure my PowerPoints are here. Uh, let's see if we're – ah, yes, good. Uh, since I teach in a business school, I'm not allowed to speak without PowerPoints. Uh, in fact, I recently attended a, uh, uh, a talk by an executive from Cisco Systems, and he began his talk by apologizing that he had forgotten to bring his PowerPoints. And the audience was so delighted that they all, they all clapped. Uh, <laughs> but you're not so lucky. I didn't forget the PowerPoints. So I'm going to begin with these. Uh, I'm here to say something about uh, what is happening uh, in the world economically from a cultural point of view. Uh, this is uh, something which I teach courses and written a book about it. And I think it's a point of view that we too often don't take. So I'd like to, to take a different slant than perhaps you're accustomed uh, to taking. This is the outline I would like to use. I'm going to begin by suggesting that we are seeing an evolution toward a multipolar economic order based on cultural comparative advantage. And I'll try to to back up this claim by giving a few examples. And as a result, I think we're beginning to see a deglobalization process as opposed to the opposite, at least from a cultural point of view. 
And then I'm trying to explain to you uh, the roots of these cultural differences and what's going on and what it may mean for the future. Now, when I give a talk on cultural issues, I always issue a caveat, and that is that um, nothing I say is meant to imply that one culture is superior to another. I have no opinions on which cultures are superior. I don't know which ones are superior. I'm not so clever. Uh, and I think perhaps it's a good, it's good advice for all of us to begin by understanding these radically different cultures and let someone else worry about which ones are superior. They're all good, after all. So this is the multipolar equilibrium we now see in the world. Okay, The economic power centers, of course, Europe, North America, uh, but we also see China, Japan, Korea, uh, in information technology in India, and Brazil, another rising economic power. So this is the landscape we're now seeing before us, and I think the reason for this is cultural, not economic. Okay. So there's more going on here than outsourcing to cheap labor. I mean, certainly cheap labor is a factor, a catalyst that's driving the situation. But if you think about it, you know, many countries have cheap labor. But only a few of these countries have become the economic powerhouses we see in Korea, in Japan, in China, and in India. So why is this? Why is it that only certain countries with cheap labor have become so successful economically, and some of them now no longer have cheap labor? I think there must be something else going on here, and I'm going to try to suggest what it is. So here are the examples I want to go through. Japanese quality, Indian information technology, manufacturing in Korea, the Chinese business sense, and then I'll also talk about us, the West, what we have to offer the world. So to begin with Japan, this was really the first clear example in our era of a country taking advantage of its unique cultural traits to become an economic success. Now, Japanese culture, you know, it's a long story, but to make it short, it's a group-oriented culture. It's a culture in which loyalty to the group takes precedence over individual merit. Okay? So what this led to in Japanese manufacturing was a concept of continuous improvement. Now, we've forgotten about this, but in the 1970s and 80s, the Japanese brought about a revolution in manufacturing. This is why we are so rich today. Here in London, over in Pittsburgh, this is why we are so wealthy. This is why the 90s were boom years. It was due to Japanese manufacturing methods, which revolutionized and increased by an order of magnitude the efficiency of manufacturing around the world due to ideas that were developed primarily at Toyota in the 1970s and 80s and ideas that are rooted in Japanese culture. One of these ideas is this idea of continuous improvement. That is, you improve the product and the process little by little. Now, this doesn't work in the U.S., for example, because if the, if the manager wants to put in a new system or a new idea, he has to show results by the end of the quarter, right, so he can get his bonus. It's an individual reward type of mechanism. But continuous improvement is little by little. You don't see the results. In particular, you don't see the results of one person's idea. If one of your workers has an idea to put the screw in this way rather than that way, you don't see the results, you can't document it, and there's no reward and there's no incentive to do it. But in Japan, there's a different mechanism going on. First of all, there's a, the importance of saving face in the group. If you have an idea, you contribute to your group, and the group rejects it, that's insulting. That's loss of face. So to honor the members of the group, it's important to take the suggestions seriously. 
So Toyota was famous for its suggestion boxes around the plant, and the company would actually pay attention to these suggestions so as to honor the contributors and preserve group harmony. Well, this cultural trait led to continuous improvement. The, the Japanese used the example of trying to wade through the deep end of a swimming pool. Now, you may know if you try to walk through deep water quickly, it's very hard. The resistance increases very quickly. But if you just ease across very slowly, then it's effortless. But you get there just the same. So with continuous improvement, it's practically effortless. It's practically cost-free. It moves slowly. But after a few years, after, say, 10 or 15 years, you are Toyota. You are the most respected manufacturing plant in the world with the world's highest standard for quality that we now all imitate. Okay, so this long time horizon, which is typical of Confucian culture, the group oriented incentives have given rise to continuous improvement. The, pr the practice of nimawashi is a traditional manifestation of this. If you want to make a decision in a Japanese group, this is still practiced to some extent. What you do is to pass around memos. In the old days, they would pass around a memo. Each person would make a change in the memo to contribute his idea and then stamp it with his hanko to indicate this was his, his point of view. Everyone's suggestion was honored, and eventually you would, you would evolve a document with a decision for the group. So this process indicates another example of the importance of honoring every member of the group, and this led to a big success at Toyota. So as a result, the Japanese developed uh, the best operations management in the world and the highest quality standards in the world. Uh, you've heard of just-in-time. Well, actually, just-in-time, just-in-time inventory systems were a product of another Japanese cultural trait unique to Japan, the vertical keiretsu. Okay? There are horizontal keiretsu and vertical keiretsu. The horizontal keiretsu were coalitions of banks for the most part. The vertical keiretsu were and still are supply chains, vertical supply chains in which the suppliers work very closely with the persons to whom they supply. For example, auto parts might be supplied to the manufacturer. This is based on old boy relationships between the executives of these, of these industries. They went to school together at Tokyo U, got to know each other, went to karaoke, drank together, played golf together. They trust each other. They're a member of a group, a very close-knit group of people who trust each other, hang out together, male bonding going on here. And as a result, when they want to source from a, a supplier, they don't take competitive bids like we do in much of the West. Rather, they work with someone they trust. And they trust this person so closely that they can share very detailed information about their technical specifications, their production schedules, which allows them to cooperate and coordinate their activities very closely. And as a result, the parts are delivered just in time because they understand each other's operations and needs so intimately. Now, this, this reduces inventory and process inventory. And we have learned over the last 20 years that the reduction in cost due to reduction of in-process inventory can easily be an order of magnitude. It makes it manufacturing incredibly more efficient. And as a result, we get the most effective operations management in the world due to cultural traits unique to that country, not due to economics, due to culture. Let's go to India. This is a bit harder to explain. I'll do my best. Okay. So in the West, we are secularists. Okay. We believe there's a distinction between the ordinary world down here 
and the divine world up there. God is up there for us, overseeing. We are in charge of this world down here. We are in charge. This This is the secular realm. If you want to understand Western history and culture, understand the history of the word secular. It's very interesting. It's really the core of who we are. Okay? Well, what this means is that Indians have a different way of coping with life than we do. We in the West, for about 2,500 years at least, have coped with difficulty, with the uncertainty of life, by controlling our environment. We engineer our environment. We install systems. Our roads are even laid out in a grid and sometimes in cities. We, everything is under control around us. This is what technology does for us. Okay, technology is important to us because this is the way we get life under control. If we get sick, we want to be cured by technology. If we have problems, we get the technical fix. We do mathematical modeling. We call in the experts. This is who we are. This is why we're so good at it, because we rely on it. Well, other peoples have a different way of getting life under control and acquiring a sense of security. What other people do, for example, is to, is to depend on the family. You go to the extended family for support. You're always in contact. So, for example, I have a number of Asian students over in the U.S. My students come from Taiwan, from China, from Korea. They are on the phone with their parents every single day. Okay, every day, several times a day for the most part. The family has this close-knit bond, right? Everyone sticks together. The parents support the children. The children support the parents. It's a different way of acquiring security. For us, our families are less important, right? Perhaps we haven't seen, gone to see Grandpa in the old folks' home for six months. In China, it's every day. Every day you're in contact with the grandparents, okay? Very important. Here, not so important because we rely on something else. Well, the Indians rely on this. They rely on their family connections for, for support and security, and they rely on something else. They, they don't rely on their ability to manipulate and structure and engineer the environment. This is why you go to Calcutta, Mumbai, things sort of seem to be falling apart, right? Nothing much works. The power grid goes down. You know, the phones don't work unless it's mobile phone, which works now. This is because this isn't, this isn't necessary for them. They rely on interdiscipline. You get control of your life by getting control of how you think about the world rather than going out and get control of the world. I mean, who went out and colonized the whole world in the 19th century? It wasn't the Indians. It was you guys. Okay? We have to get control of our surroundings. We've got to go out there and make the world, make sure the world is aligned the way we want it. They don't have to do that because they have inner control. Now, this inner control, historically, is something to do with yoga, discipline, and so forth. Today, what it, it takes the form primarily of intellectual discipline. The most competitive schools in the world are the IITs, right? The, the Technology Institutes in India. The exams are incredibly competitive. So the Indians rely on intellectual prowess, study, intellectual discipline to decide who wins the competitive battle because this is what's important to them. This is a highly intellectual culture, and as a result, you see this, uh, this need to get control of one's thinking process manifesting itself in intellectual activity and discipline. Well, you couldn't, you couldn't ask for a more appropriate background for the information age, right? It's just tailor-made for the new information age. This is why India's economy took off like gangbusters 
when the information economy became so important in the world. It's tailor-made for it. Some other traits that Indians have culturally that help to explain their success, one is networking, not only through the family, but through trusted friends and acquaintances. Uh, I think email was a gift from the gods for the Indians. I think perhaps half the emails in the world are sent by Indians, right? They're constantly networking with each other, constantly in contact. If you want to learn how to network, watch your Indian friends and colleagues. They are the masters of networking. They know where everywhere everyone is all the time and what they're doing, what they're up to, and they know who to call on if they need some assistance. And this is how it's done. You get your assistance, you get things done by working through your networks. This is why marriages are so important in India, right? Marriage is a big affair. It takes several days. You know, it brings people from all over the world to the marriage ceremony. Why? Why do you think that is? Why is marriage so important? It's because you're joining two networks. And the network you're connected to is absolutely essential to your prosperity and survival. This is why it's so important. So so they're very good at this. So as a result, networking is a very useful skill in business, in economics. They are the masters. Okay. Oh, something else I should mention. Uh, In technical knowledge, okay, what's the best way to learn how to fix a computer? Okay, do you read the manual? Do these guys who fix your computer read the manual? No, they've never touched the manual. They pick it up from their friends and their buddies. They network. They all talk to each other. They pick up the tricks from each other. Well, if you're a good networker, you're going to be even better at this. So this networking, this ancient networking practice, is absolutely perfect for the information age, for picking up technology. And this is how, this is how my students do it. It's how your students do it. Okay? They don't read any books. They just learn from each other. They're always networking with each other, picking up these ideas. It's a very highly verbal culture, not only English-speaking in India, for historical reasons you guys know about, but it's from centuries back. The Indians, the Aryans, were nomadic people. They relied heavily on a verbal art form, a verbal culture, verbal literature, because of because they were nomadic. And as a result, today is a very articulate, very verbal culture. You couldn't ask for a more appropriate trait for our day in the world of business. Uh, a good case study of this is software development. Who is ideally suited to write software? Well, it's the Indian guy, right? Writing c- computer code, I can tell you, requires enormous Mental discipline. If you don't think so, try it. Okay? You've got to have your mind organized. You've got to be able to focus and to concentrate. Well, if you spent your life, you know, studying for those incredibly hard exams, right? You know, studying day and night under your parents' demands. Well, you're going to know how to focus your mind. You're going to be able to create software. And you know, software is not engineering the world like we Westerners do. You're not building bridges with software. Software is essentially a thought creation, right? Software really exists up here. It's just, you know, you know, Vishnu himself couldn't have dreamed a better occupation for the Indian mind than creating software. All right. Now, Indians won't tell it. Indians would probably not agree with this. In fact, I should say in generally, when I talk about a country or a culture, probably they're going to disagree with me. We tend to disagree with what people say about our countries because our cultures teach us how to think about ourselves sometimes in strange ways. So I think Indians would probably describe themselves as westernizing. Well, we're becoming like you now. We're westernized. Okay? But I see Indians as Indianizing. 
reverting to their ancient Indian culture. And this is why, for the reasons I've tried to outline, this is why India has become an economic powerhouse in our modern world. Okay? Another one of those poles in the multipolar equilibrium. Let's go to Korea. See what happens there. Okay? Korea has been a manufacturing miracle. You know, since the 1960s or so, this country has blossomed into an amazing powerhouse economically, mainly through manufacturing. It began with the J-Bowl, these big family-owned corporations. Okay, how did that happen? Well, it happened because of this guy, Park Chung-hee. Everyone hated him. He was a dictator. In fact, he was assassinated, finally. Okay, but he studied in Japan, and he picked up the idea of the K-Retsu. They were called Saibatsu at the time. He said, we need something like that in Korea. But he did it the Korean way. What he did was to form connections with the, the major families that ran the important corporation in Korea and use his authoritarian position. This is a so-called high power distance culture where authority is important. He used his authoritarian position to line up these corporations to do things the way that he wanted them to do it. Okay? So he gave them concessions for, you know, for permits and import and tariffs and so forth in exchange for for aligning themselves with his national plan for building the economy. The J-Bowl were the basis for the Korean success story. They were the creation of this guy. Okay, so they began due to a Korean historical and cultural trait. And today, there are several cultural traits in Korea that tend to reinforce their success. One is the importance of the relationship between the boss and the employee. Okay? So, for example, in, in the U.S. or U.K., the bottom line, right, is the most important objective in business. Maximize the bottom line. In Korea, the most important objective is loyalty to your boss. You can go into a Korean firm and, ask, and offer them a substantial increase over their current salary to come work for you. They won't leave the boss. They feel a sense of loyalty to the boss. And the boss feels a sense of responsibility to the employee. The employees work hard. They work long hours. They're totally dedicated to the boss. But in return, the boss takes care of his people. He takes care of his men, and they are men in almost every case. He gives them advice for life, you know, how to get along with your family, you know, how to relax, you know, what to do with yourself. So this paternal relationship creates a, a strong loyalty to the firm rather than to oneself, okay? which can be good for business. It, it's good for long-term investment in the business. Short-term bottom line is not important. Long-term loyalty to the firm is important. This allows the firm to take long-term objectives, which many Western corporations cannot do because of their short-term mentality. The Korean culture is very strongly organized by age. Okay, So I have a number of Korean students. And I've noticed that when they get together and meet each other, the first thing they do, do you know, do anyone know what Koreans do when the first time they meet each other? So you have a bunch of Korean students here at LSC. They're, they meet and go to, go to dinner or something, get to know each other. What's the first thing they do? Anyone know? The first thing they have to get settled among each other. No one knows this. They find out how old each other is. Okay? You've got to find out how old people are. A difference of age even six months means you have to defer to that guy. You've got to use the polite form of grammar when you speak to this guy. Just six months. Okay? So you have this pecking order by age, a very strict hierarchy. 
You know, my colleagues who have all these Korean students don't know this is going on. We just under our radar, but it's going on. So they have this very highly organized hierarchical structure in their groups. Okay, so it's a very strong discipline, right? Age-based discipline. So they get things done. You do what you're supposed to do. You follow instructions of the next guy up the ladder. And this discipline, again, makes for very efficient, very effective manufacturing because you have a highly disciplined workforce, much like a little army, with strong command and people obey the commands rather than going their own separate ways and trying to maximize their own self-benefit. This is a so-called masculine culture. Now, I don't like to use that term because it sounds somewhat politically incorrect in this part of the world, but it's a term from the literature, okay? A masculine culture is a culture basically in which competition is important. You're supposed to be aggressive, and sometimes martial arts and things like that are important, but basically the characteristic is that a masculine culture is competitive. It's more like war every day, okay? In fact, there's a very famous book, Sun Tzu's Art of War, that a lot of business people read in Asia to find out how to do business with the Chinese and, and so forth. Okay, so this masculine culture makes Koreans very competitive. And if anyone who's negotiated with Koreans, particularly on their home turf, has learned about this, you can't win with these guys. You know, you go and negotiate with those guys, you're going to come out the loser. There's no other way. They are too determined. They are too good. They are too aggressive. Okay. So this is good for their economy. They always win in negotiation. You know, these guys, the poor guys who are trying to negotiate with North Korea over the nuclear weapons, I'm glad I'm not in their position. You cannot win with these guys. Okay. Also, they don't form the right relationships either. You've got to have a long-term relationship to, make, to get somewhere. Let's go to China, another Confucian culture. Okay, so I tried to make a case here that Korean manufacturing success is grounded in their unique cultural traits. How about China? Of course, China is a spectacular economic success, double-digit growth, you know, for decade after decade. The economy actually quadrupled in 20 years. It's amazing, right? So what's going on here? Well, there's a cultural trait, entrepreneurship, particularly you find in the coastal subcultures, the Cantonese-speaking, Fujianese-speaking cultures of China, very entrepreneurial, okay? They're very much business-oriented. We're in the Hong Kong room, right? Go to Hong Kong, you see this. Everyone's just working, you know, 18 hours a day, you know, making as much money as possible, right? That's the meaning of life in Hong Kong. You make as much money as possible, and they make a lot of it, okay? So what's going on? What's the reason for all this? Well, first of all, this is a so-called uncertainty-tolerant culture. It's a term from the literature. Okay, some cultures, people are a little bit nervous about life. They don't like to take chances, like to stick close to the family and so forth. Other cultures, including the U.K., is uncertainty tolerant, meaning that people aren't afraid of risk. They can travel the world. You know, they don't have to rely on their connections and their friends. They can go out alone and take a risk. Well, uh, Chinese cultures, as a rule, particularly along the coast, are uncertainty tolerant. So entrepreneurship fits this mold very well. Okay, so if you're in Hong Kong, for example, what do people do for recreation? I mean, what's the most the favorite sport in Hong Kong? Anyone know? What do the Hong Kong do with the favorite sport over there? The horses. Yes. Thank you. The horses. And, of course, you bet on the horses, right? You pick your lucky number. Very superstitious. You pick your lucky number. You bet on the horses. Right? Very risk prone. They aren't afraid to take chances. This is good for business. And, of course, Hong Kong is just packed with thousands and thousands of little companies, you know, starting up all the time. Okay. 
Self-esteem is very closely tied to wealth and status. A very old idea in Chinese culture. Deng Xiaoping, famous exponent of this idea, to be rich is glorious. So in Hong Kong, for example, you know, you've made it when you're a member of the Hong Kong Golf Club. Okay? So membership in the Hong Kong Golf Club is about a million Hong Kong dollars a year. Very expensive. And most of the guys who belong don't even play golf. It's the prestige. Okay? So you, you have to drive a BMW, you know, to have to be a winner. So where do you drive your BMW in Hong Kong? Nowhere. There's nowhere to park. You just put it in the garage and you pay the high rent on the garage and keep it there. Okay, but the prestige is everything. Okay. So that helps drive, it gives a motivation to drive and succeed in business. Okay, this is true of Cantonese culture in general. You go to Guangzhou, you see the same thing. This is Guangzhou in the picture. I was in Guangzhou a few years ago, none of this was there. None of these buildings were there a few years ago. Like mushrooms coming up. Okay. Okay, something else. This relationship-based style of business you see in the Confucian world, well, first of all, it's based on the family, right? The family is like a little army. There are so many family-owned businesses in Chinese culture. The grandfather runs things, and when the grandfather says, you do this, you do it, right? The grandfather is the general. He is the boss. So it's a very strictly organized family business run like a little army, and then you get things done. You're successful. There's this concept called guanxi. Guanxi is a kind of relationship you make in a relationship-based business. So what you want to do in the West, for example, if you want to make a deal, you know, have a relationship with them, you sign a contract. Okay? You have to sign a contract with guys. Perhaps you don't even know the guys you're signing the contract with. You just met them today. You have a negotiation, you call a lawyer, you draw up a contract, you sign it, and if they don't follow through on the contract, you take up the court. You call the lawyers. Okay, the system takes care of the problem. We trust the system to take care of these things for us. They don't trust the system. Their system doesn't work. The legal system doesn't work in China. In fact, it's actually based on German law. Why doesn't it work? Because it doesn't need to work. They don't need it. Okay? They have each other. You trust the person. Here you trust the system. There you trust the person. You build a long-term, lifelong relationship in some cases with the people you do business with. It's called guanxi, which means relationship in Mandarin Chinese. Okay? And you invest in each other. I do things for you. You do things for me. I take care of you. It's not quid pro quo. It's not corruption. It's not bribery. Okay? It's investing in a relationship. Over time. So once you've invested in the relationship, it would be a great loss to lose that relationship because it's the key to doing business. Okay? So as a result, once you have guanxi, you can trust that person with your life. He's going to follow through. He is going to take care of you. He's going to deliver the product the way you want it. Else lose guanxi. So this, these are the strong cords that bind Chinese business people together traditionally and is still very important in China. Okay, well, it works. This is the basis for the Chinese economic miracle. Guanxi, primarily through family and clan connections. Who do you think financed that Chinese growth miracle that we've been seeing the last 20, 30 years? Was it Swiss banks? Pardon me, but no, it wasn't Swiss banks. It wasn't Japanese banks. It was families. It was Vancouver, Chinese overseas Chinese in Vancouver, San Francisco, Toronto, Hong Kong. 
the Chinese ethnic minorities in Indonesia, Malaysia, and so forth, they financed the Chinese economic miracle through their family connection because they trusted the people in whom they were investing. Remember the Asian financial crisis? Remember that? Okay. Who was not affected in Asia by the Asian financial crisis? Two countries were not affected. Some people say they're one country. Okay. Taiwan and China were largely unaffected by the Asian financial crisis. Why? Because most of Asia had largely switched over to debt and equity financing Western style. Bank loans, such things as that. Their culture is not set up for this kind of thing. They don't have transparency. They don't need transparency. So as a result, everything collapsed. They didn't have the right kind of transparent book, you know, bookkeeping and so forth to make equity and debt financing work. However, China and Taiwan still operated primarily along traditional finance through family and clan connections. There was no crisis. In fact, Beijing had to bail out Hong Kong during the Asian financial crisis. We forget about that. We don't talk about that here. Okay. So China, after all, it works, right? They have a system that's been working. They've been the largest economy in the world for eight of the last ten centuries. In about 15 years, they'll be the world's largest economy again. It works. While we're focused on the Middle East, right, they are focused on the rest of the world, under our radar. They are everywhere, the Chinese. They are in Africa. They're in the Middle East. They're in South America. They're in Asia. Swinging business deals you wouldn't believe. They are taking over. And the reason they're taking over, at least one reason I suggest, is that their relationship style of business is much more comfortable to most of the world than our rules-based, transparent style of business. Most of the world likes the Chinese way better than it likes our way. And the Chinese are taking advantage of this. Okay, how about us? What do we do? What do we have to offer? Okay, what we have to offer is innovation, technological innovation. That's no accident. Okay, it's not because we're smart. That's not the reason. It's not because and yet in the UK you have to say clever, right? Not because we're clever. Okay, it's because of this concept of the disenchantment of nature. This was actually articulated by Max Weber a long time ago. Okay. So the concept is that, you know, we believe that the natural world is within our control. It's a mechanism that we can manipulate. It's made up of little atoms. For example, we have a world of dead matter with little atoms and molecules that make it up. We can go in there with machines and manipulate this thing. Okay? God is up there. So we're not disturbing God if we manipulate the secular world. God gives us permission to do that. It goes way back to the Old Testament. You know, I won't go into it now, but there's a long heritage here. Okay? And, of course, we have the Greek heritage, which tells us how to manipulate the world. We analyze the world. We use reductive analysis. We reduce the world to its ultimate constituent parts so that we can manipulate it. That's from the Greek heritage. So we combine our Judeo-Christian heritage, which gives us secularism, which gives us the idea of God is transcendent and the world is within our control. We combine that with Greek rationality, which gives us the wherewithal to know how to manipulate the secular world, and you get technology. This is the source of technology. Okay, this is how we deal with life. It is our coping mechanism, as I talked about before. Okay? Now, since it's so important to us to develop technology, of course, this happened you know, gradually. It happened over the centuries. And you see flowerings of Western technology and Western lifestyle in places like northern Italy during the Renaissance. 
like the Hanseatic League in Germany, okay, and like the UK and North America in the 19th and 20th centuries, you see Western ideas tend to flourish when there's decentralized political control. This allows this sort of approach to work best. Okay, so it has developed gradually. Nonetheless, it is the trajectory. It is our path of development. Now, we tend to think that there's one path of development for the whole world. We speak of the less developed nations and the developed nations, us. Right? We speak that way. Well, what we have in mind is our path of development through along a technology path where we get greater and greater control through rational science. That's our path. It's because of who we are. Nothing wrong with it. But it's not their path. They develop in other ways. You know, Chinese civilization has been developing for 5,000 years. This, if this is a developing country, what is this all about? It's been developing you know, for 5,000 years. Very developing country, right? I mean, Chinese is an old country when Rome was a rut in the road. Okay, they have a different path of development than we do. But this is our path. Okay? It is for a reason. This is how we get control of life. Another trait that's closely correlated with this is our individualism. Okay? This is why we rely on manipulation of the environment as opposed to each other. We don't rely on collective norms. We rely on individualistic, individualistic norms to get control of things. So we basically think that human beings are autonomous, rational individuals. This goes way back, at least 2,500 years, you know, very deeply ingrained in us. So what this means is, first of all, it gives us an economic advantage. Because as individuals, we have the right to rethink everything from scratch. Now, for example, and I teach in the U.S., I have a very multicultural classroom, okay? So we got a number of students, Confucian backgrounds. They want, to, they want me to tell them what they're supposed to learn, right? I'm supposed to hand down the knowledge from the master to the student. They think this is more efficient, right? I mean, why should students write their own essay when some great writer has already written about it? Why should they, you know, pretend to be a, a writer when they should learn, they should read, you know, the great works of the past and learn what's in there? Because so my American form of education is totally foreign to these students. Okay, they have a different source. But in the U.S., in the American Western style of education, what we do is ask each student to rethink the material from scratch, to prove it to themselves it's true. So what do we do in chemistry class? Do we give them a textbook and say, memorize the textbook? No, we make them do experiments. We make them see it for themselves, prove it to themselves it's true. What do you do in geometry class? Okay, do you memorize Euclid's theorems? No, you have to prove them. We make our students prove the theorems so you can convince yourself they're true. So every student ideally, of course, usually the ideal isn't met, but ideally every student restructures knowledge and rethinks it all from scratch. So what happens when people do that? Some people rethink it in a different way. Right? Some people don't reproduce the mistakes of the past. They do something different, like this guy on top. You know who he is? Anyone know? Michael Faraday, great British scientist with a very independent mind. He went out there into his laboratory, and he tested the ideas. Wow, amazing results. The Wright brothers. The Wright brothers didn't just tinker with airplanes. They rethought fluid mechanics from scratch. They redeveloped the science of fluid mechanics so they could design their propellers. Okay? They have been brought up this way. They didn't re just receive what's in the textbook. They rethought it from the beginning. Thomas Edison was homeschooled. Okay? He rethought everything. He didn't even go to school. But he became a brilliant inventor. Okay, so this is the way it works. So the payoff here 
is that we can enrich our technological basis by creative new ideas, by rethinking from scratch. And if you're smart enough, you'll rethink it differently and come up with a new idea. So we have this rich, you know, fount of technological innovation year after year after year. It accumulates and it's a survival trait for us. It keeps us alive. This is why we exist. If we haven't done this, if we didn't do this, we wouldn't have survived. We wouldn't be here. So we are innovative because this is how, this is our selective advantage in the competition between cultures. Okay. So this is our, our own cultural comparative advantage. Innovation through technology. We have that to offer. Okay. So I'm arguing here. Okay. And we're going to have some time at the end, right? To, 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 for dialogue. So, so I'm going to wrap this up pretty quickly. So uh, be thinking about comments you have or, or questions you want to raise. But the, the point I'm trying to make here is that uh, we, see, we are seeing as a result a deglobalization of culture. The, the world is not homogenizing culturally. Don't believe that. Everyone says it is. It's not. And one reason is not is that the economically successful countries have every reason to maintain the distinctive cultural traits that make them successful. Okay? They are going to survive because they have discovered you know, how to exploit their own cultures. Now, the other guys, the other guys who have not learned how to exploit their cultural traits, they may homogenize with someone else. But these guys, the four or five or six poles of the new economy, they are going to retain their distinctive cultures because they're too successful at it. It's good for them. So I think we're going to see this, this cultural deglobalization going on. Again, these guys may not put it that way. They may tell you they're westernizing. Don't believe it. They're not. So I suggest if we're going to succeed in this world order, we must stop trying to globalize, trying to western globalization is a euphemism for westernization, right? trying to westernize norms, westernize behavior. That's our way. It's fine for us. We're going to have to understand what they're doing because otherwise they're going to win. In fact, in many cases, they're winning already. But if we're going to compete, we have to understand what's going on out there. And it's a cultural difference. Something else, communication technology. We think somehow that communication technology is homogenizing the world and bringing all cultures together, making the world a small place. Uh-uh. No way. It does exactly the opposite, exactly the opposite. For example, the lowly mobile phone, okay? Did anyone know where the mobile phone first penetrated, first became very popular? Anyone know? It was Finland. Okay. Finland, the first place that had big penetration, mobile phone. There it was because of the weather. It snows a lot, knocked down the phone lines. So people wanted mobile phones so they could talk with each other, okay? But where's the second place? The mobile phone became large penetration. Where did it became, pardon me? Korea. Korea? Korea. Well, China, yes. Hong Kong. Okay, now part of China. Yeah. Okay. So I can remember, I was in Hong Kong when the mobile phone was becoming popular. You know, it just, it just arrived in Asia, and everyone was on the street, you know, talking in their phones and showing them off. It was amazing. Okay. So you, you go across the ferry, right, and you would hear a phone ring like five times, you know, all at once. And all these, everyone was reaching for their phone. It was the wrong guy, you know, and that wasn't my phone. Okay, so why was the phone so popular in, in Asia? Well, partly because it was prestige. It was really prestigious to have one of these phones. Okay. But secondly, because it's a relationship-based culture. This was just a God-given device 
to strengthen the relationships and the interaction between people, between members of the family. So, you know, for example, the parents are on the phone with their kids all day long to make sure they're doing their homework, they're behaving, they're in the place they should be. They're always on the phone. So if you're, you're a supervisor, okay, you're arriving late at the office, you call up your employees, you know, to make sure they're at work, make sure they're there on time, and the mobile phone is just perfect. You know, so for example, here in the West, we have friends, right? We, we may see our friends maybe once or twice a week, go out for dinner. You're in China, you're with your friends all the time as a rule. Okay? You always want to be with your friends. If you can't be with them in our mobile age, you're on the phone with them all the time. So my, my Asian students are walking around the campus. The phone is glued to their ear. Okay? They're always on this phone. So it's a, it's a piece of technology that just fits the culture to a T. It's amazing. Perfect technology of this culture. So these guys aren't westernizing. right? They're not westernizing with these phones. Okay? They are Confucianizing with these phones. The phones are in reinforcing their own way of thinking and doing things. So this is, this is true in general, communications technology, I would claim. Uh, websites. Have you ever heard of Orkut.com? Okay. Uh, wildly popular in, in Brazil. Okay. It was popular in Iran before the government shut it down. It's like MyPlace or Facebook. It's one of those sites. Okay. But it's, it's intended for something different. It was actually invented by a Turkish guy, Orkut, who worked for Google. Okay? And the idea is this is a, a website that facilitates close relationships with people you know in your network, maybe your family, maybe your good friends. It's a way of facilitating a traditional relationship-based type of culture that most of the world has. In fact, until recently, the, the, uh, the front page on their website had this statement on it like a textbook description of a relationship-based culture. So you can use a website in our way. You can put your, you know, your picture up there for strangers to look at. You can you know, communicate and make friends with people you've never met before. You can do it the Western way, sure. But you can also use a website to do it their way, the relationship-based way, as a medium to facilitate communication between closely-knit networks. This is what Orkut was originally for. And it's what it's used for in Brazil. Television. It's, it's cheap to put up a satellite channel. I was living in the Middle East recently, and I turned on my television. There are 350 Arabic language channels, okay? None of them from the West. They're not watching BBC. They're not watching Western shows. They're watching their own stuff in Arabic. 350. This reinforces their culture, okay? They don't need us. So this communications technology, the websites, I claim, are actually distancing the cultures from each other. They're reinforcing the unique cultural traits around the world, rather than the opposite, as, as we think. Okay. So, um, I guess, um, maybe wait, about five more minutes, is that reasonable? Yeah, that's fine. Thank you. Okay. So, just to give a little background, what's going on here? Uh, maybe you've picked this up as I've gone along. Uh, the root of the differences I'm talking about is the difference between rule-based and relationship-based cultures. Okay? So a rule-based culture is like ours. You have autonomous individuals, and we go by the rules. The rules are important to us. In relationship-based cultures, relationships are what it's all about. They define a human being in relatedness to others. So the unit of human existence is actually a larger group, like the family or the village. Okay? You exist as a member of some other group, whereas here we exist as an individual. And that makes all the difference in the world. 
So in our rule-based culture, okay, since we are autonomous individuals, we're basically equal. Okay? We're all basically created equal. We see it that way. Well, if we're all equal, then how are we going to run things? Who is going to be the leader? Who's going to call the shots? You know, why should we be subservient to some other person? Well, we run things by the rules. We respect the rules. We don't respect the people. You know, if you have a prime minister, you have a president, you know, you cat calls, you know, you insult the guy, you know, the reporters, you know, ask embarrassing questions. We have no respect for the people, right? We respect the rules, however. Now, why do we respect the rules? What what is it about rules that would induce us to obey them? They must be self-evident. They must have an inherent logic about it. So, for example, you, you reach a traffic signal on the street and you stop. Okay, so why do you stop at the traffic signal? In the U.S., it's very common, for example, perhaps here as well, for people to reach a traffic signal in the middle of the night, no one around in sight, and nonetheless sit there and wait the whole duration of the traffic signal before you go through. Okay, why do we do that? Because we think there's something logical about this rule. It just makes sense okay, to take turns going through the intersection. So we obey the rule because we see it as inherently logical. Now, speed limit, we don't obey. We violate speed limit all the time. Why? Because there's nothing inherently logical about a particular speed limit, 90 kilometers per hour. Why shouldn't it be 95? Right. So, but we tend to obey the rules that we see is inherently logical and self-evident. Okay? Well, this means that logic and rationality are absolutely essential to holding our societies together. This is why we rely on it so much. And as a result, we have a kind of ethic of equality. We're all equally subject to the rules which we all hold to be self-evident, at least the rules that we obey. So this is what a rule-based culture is all about. Relationship-based cultures, you don't really exist apart from, say, the family in a Confucian culture, in an uh, African culture. I lived in Zimbabwe for a while um, with the Shona people. These are in the Baileys here. Uh, There, the village is the unit of human existence. You don't really exist. So, for example, you meet someone on the street, uh, you go through the greeting ritual. Uh, it means, how is your day? My day is okay if yours is. Okay, so, you know, my existence is tied with yours. And they mean it. They actually mean this. So there's a, a collectivist sense of human existence that we don't, we don't enjoy here. Okay? So what you get is a different kind of ethic, different kind of norms. There's an ethic of taking care of the people you're related to because they are really part of you. It's like taking care of yourself. The self is a bigger unit. Okay? So here, you know, in the West, we may visit Grandpa once a year at the old folks' home, but we get all upset about the starving children in Somalia. We care about people we've never met, but maybe we don't care as much as we should about our own family. You go to China, they're, in the, you know, they're visiting Grandpa every single day, but they even know where Somalia is. They couldn't care less. It's a different kind of ethic, grounded in their, in their sense of who they are as human beings. You know, I'm not saying one is better than the other. They're just different. It's a different sensibility. So, you know, democracy, well, it doesn't really make sense in a place like this, right? Democracy makes sense for individuals. A little political comment there. Okay, so this is what I'm saying. We should understand what's going on out there. Rather than trying to put everyone in the same mold, you know, allow people to develop in the direction that makes sense for them. And we can take advantage of this through cultural comparative advantage. Okay. Now, there is, uh, let me just skip one here. There is one final concern that people have. 
uh, about this idea of having cultures that diverge, and that is, how do we all get along if we're all so different? I mean, don't we have this clash of civilizations that Huntington talked about? Don't we have this clash of religions? Don't we have to homogenize us all if we're going to get along and live in peace? Well, I'd like to address this because I think this is the major stumbling block to the idea I'm trying to address here. Think about it. Think about the worst ethnic conflicts in the world. Just go through a list in your mind. I would suggest that most of these are between groups that are culturally very similar. And in most cases, racially identical. Just think of a few examples. Look at the Balkans, right? Muslims and the Christians in the Balkans. Culturally the same. Same ethnic background. Religiously different, but culturally very similar. Racially identical. Uh, Muslims and Hindus in India. Or India versus Pakistan. Culturally very similar. Right? Religiously different, but culturally very similar. Racially identical, but still a very acrimonious clash historically. Think of some more. Just think, go through your mind. There are cases where it's not like that. South Africa, of course, is different. Okay? But in most cases, the nastiest ethnic conflicts are between people who are very similar. There seems to be a reason for this that was suggested by Marvin Harris, an anthropologist. He suggested that historically, through the ages of time, uh, there was a survival advantage in having warfare with your neighbors. In fact, several species do this, not only human beings, because if you have warfare with your neighbors, you have territoriality. You have a territory. This is why we are so territorial as a species. Okay? Uh, well, if there's territory, there tends to be a no man's land between the territories. You don't cross without challenging the other group. Well, the no man's land tends to be a place that no one farms or hunts. So the habitat regenerates. The animal species revive, and the land regenerates. So it's an ecologically advantage, uh, an ecological ad advantage to have this kind of territorial warfare. And the societies that had this kind of warfare tended to survive. The others tended to destroy their habitat. So perhaps this is one reason we have so many masculine cultures Okay? And one reason that we have a sense of territoriality. Okay? And one reason that we are very prone to have disputes with people who are very similar to us but slightly different. And in fact, this is the way it actually works out, right? The slightest difference seems to be just the, the spark we need to ignite ethnic tension and hatred. Just the slightest difference. Perhaps this is why. So I'm suggesting here that, you know, it's, it's not the source of, of conflict is not major cultural difference. It's not different thought patterns, different civilizations. Don't create this kind of conflict. It's slight differences. And we're never going to get rid of slight differences. Okay? There's no, there's no chance of that. So I think we, we have nothing to fear from major radical cultural differences, which we now see around the world, as I claim, and in, which I claim are actually accelerating and they're moving apart. But this is not a cause of conflict. In fact, I would suggest that, you know, cultures are something like ecosystems. They're different systems that each have a logic of their own, okay? and they, they can coexist on the planet, and the planet is actually better for it. You know, the planet is better for it ecologically because of the exchange of heat and nutrients and so forth. It's better for it culturally because of the exchange of ideas. Great civilizations have always exchanged ideas. You know, the Egyptians, the Mesopotamians, the, the Harappan civilization were exchanging ideas like crazy for a thousand years. Okay. But they incorporated the ideas into their own culture, 
made it fit into the organism, much as we incorporated Japanese ideas into our manufacturing plants. So this cultural comparative advantage, it makes us all stronger, it gives us good ideas, and it's not in itself, I would claim, a, a source of conflict. Okay, so that's what I have to say. And uh, the floor is open for your comments or questions. Thanks very much indeed. Now, what I'd like to do is you know, invite questions from the floor. Could everyone just say who they are and where they're from? I'd be quite great. And there are microphones, so... Um, gentleman over there? Okay, so my claim was that I have no opinion that one culture is superior to another. Now, perhaps I'm implying, however, that some cultures are economically superior in the sense that they can compete more effectively on the world stage. Yeah, I have implied that. Some cultures have found success with their cultural traits, yes. But my interpretation of this is that some cultures have discovered how to exploit their unique cultural traits in the economic scene, and others have not discovered that. So, for example, when I, when I was living in Zimbabwe, I found that the primary attitude that was there that we should be like the West. Okay? The Chinese aren't saying we should be like the West. The Japanese aren't saying we should be like the West. They're saying we should be like us. Now, the Indians are saying we should be like the West, but in fact, it turns out it works, works in their favor. So I, I guess what I'm trying to say here is not that there's even an inherent economic advantage in various cultural traits. The trick is to discover how these cultural traits can be exploited and used. I can't tell you they can all be exploited. But, of course, you know, being able to compete in today's world economy is not necessarily a mark of superiority. Superiority is a somewhat different concept. It's just economic competitiveness. You know, filters can be superior in other ways. I think Jonathan. Yeah. Jonathan, you said. 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 Jonathan, you Similar changes in other societies which may well be moving in the direction of individualism. 
even if these are distinctive cultural advantages at the moment, they will continue being that. Okay, I, I brought up the issue of development precisely to emphasize that cultures do change. They're constantly in motion, absolutely. And what's going on in the West, I would claim, is a development toward who we are. We are more, we refining, it's like our DNA is developing, right, in, into an organism. We are discovering who we are gradually. We are individualists at heart, and we're seeing that playing itself out. And it's, in some periods, it develops faster than in other periods. Now, other cultures are also changing. You know, if you look at any culture, uh, look at China, it's changed enormously over its history. Its culture has developed, not necessarily in the same direction as us. Now, recently, it may appear that these guys are becoming more individualist. Well, yes, the elites are more westernized. They're speaking English, so they become more individualistic. They watch more TV, yeah, from in a short-term point of view. But I would argue that to the extent that these cultures are, are organic, to the extent that they're true to who they are and developing along their own momentum, they are not necessarily developing toward individualism or toward our, our norms at all. We can't see this, I think, because of, because of the spectacles that we wear. But I would claim that, you know, if you look at it, perhaps they are. Mr. Lambert. Thank you. Alexis, I'd like to give the ambassador to the ambassador in Japan. I'd like to catch up with my predecessor. Um, it is interesting enough, you said, we're much more precise in the relation between culture and economic performance in respect of the East. So you're moving westwards and becoming much more theoretical, much more linked to ethic, much less uh, to the economic dimension. But the, it seems to me to be what you, what you did address are the institutions. I mean, cultures don't only generate various degrees of efficiency as well as the, the economic performance. Uh, they have a tremendous impact on political institutions, and the political institutions again have an impact on the way in which an, an economy sort of develops. And this latter aspect seems to me to be at the heart of this point in time, because why you had in the past different areas in the world with people, different cultures, different ethics, and different political systems, because of, of the scarcity. And because of communication, because of the speed at which you can get everything around the world, whether they're goods, services, finances, or people, um, you need rules, and you need global rules. And one of the most interesting points of view, when you look at it from a complete other angle of international relations, is how will the international system react to these changes? Now, it's that, I don't want to be too long, but there are some aspects that are extremely interesting.
Okay, I agree completely that institutions are very important, but we must bear in mind that Guanxi is an institution. The family is an institution. Many institutions are not rule-based, as our institutions are. So there's, I think we must grant that certain types of institutions have advantages. For example, the relationship-based institutions, while, while they are slow, they are sluggish, they are inefficient, they're incredibly stable. So, for example, when there was political problems in, in Eastern Europe, right, the Soviets came in, the institutions collapsed, the economy collapsed. Okay, government control in China has collapsed many times. The country has broken into warring factions, you know, over many centuries. The economy kept right on going because it was based on these strong links, these nylon links between individuals. Okay, so there are advantages to different kinds of institutions. Now, the second issue you raised, how are we going to all get along? How, how can we have a, a framework for the world? Okay, if we have these different, very different institutions. Well, that was a slide I skipped, actually. Um, actually, if you look at the different cultures, there are, there are norms within these traditions for dealing with cultural difference. You know, cultures have always had to deal with cultural difference. And we actually have a, a norm in our culture for dealing with cultural difference. When we're dealing with other cultures, what we ought to do when in their environment is to act in such a way that if it were generally adopted, would not undermine the culture that makes that action possible. Okay, so what, what I'm saying here is the way we should relate to other cultures is to give them space, to give them space to develop in their own way. And they should do the same with us, according to whatever norm that they they want to develop. So I don't see the necessity for a common rule book for the world. In fact, I would suggest this can't work because this denies who people are. We don't want a common rule book. We want a coexistence of ecosystems okay, with different institutions in each one. And cultures have coexisted this way for about 300,000 years. I think we can still do it. Uh, I'm just very much interested in a uh, different society, different culture, uh, where dominant culture, for instance, like in this country, uh, expects uh, the uh, people from uh, in communist Pakistan, for instance, like hijab, they would not like even the the Uh, in case of uh, 
deprived uh, some people who are not economically successful, like Bengalis, uh, 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 the uh, uh, Pakistanis, uh, uh, the West Indians, whereas some part of Indian subcontinent arrived, if they have been exceedingly well, whether any culture plays in that part, because the culture is same as you were saying before. So what is the reason for that one domain culture by British they want to impose their cultural Yes, well, um, different cultures seem to deal with their power in different ways. So, for example, the Mongols really didn't care what their subordinates uh, were like. They just basically collected taxes and let them live as they pleased. Uh, it's true that certain cultures tend to be universalizing in the sense that we, we I say we because the Western culture is universalizing, in the sense that we believe that you know, ideas and norms of behavior are self-evident. So there's a natural tendency toward, toward universalization because, you know, if, if a norm or a rule is self-evident and based on logic, well, logic is universal and everyone should recognize it. So we tend to assume just naturally that everyone will, you know, eventually conform and develop. And, you know, it's, it's, who, it's part of who we are. It's not really a sense of arrogance. It's just the way we think. So I think that perhaps this is our particular cultural way of dealing with power. Uh, but other cultures have different ways of doing that. Okay, my name is Harry, I'm a graduate student here at the LLC. Um, I'm a bit skeptical about the claims that you can explain economic differences based on culture, because um, in many ways it always seems the easy thing to do. You witness certain countries getting richer and then you find something in the culture. And the best example is indeed India. For many years it was said India, Hindu rate of growth, it's, the, uh, it's Hinduism which is blocking development, and now we're going back to Indian culture and finding trace. Um, and sometimes we have the same concepts, but we interpret it to explain the economic differences. And it's the same with China, which for many generations we've always said, oh, the Chinese can never develop because they have inherent characteristics fixed, as you would say, which uh, inhibit any capitalist logic. And so in, in many ways, um, interpretations based on culture, for me, are in fact missing the point because they are too easy to pick and choose as time goes by. And they are missing out on what I think are valid explanations, geography or institutions. Okay, well, to, to point to a cultural explanation for economic difference is not to deny the other factors involved, not to deny geography and, and, and exchange rates and all of those other things that are important in historical accident, of course. But I would like to, to indicate that culture is a major player. Okay, it interacts with the, all these other factors, and you can't understand what's going on without it. So I think the test for me, the test as to whether culture is a valid explanation, is to ask, can you truly understand what's going on without a cultural point of view? And I would suggest no. You cannot truly, I, I agree with you that you can sometimes, you know, post hoc, you know, impose cultural explanations, you know, to, to explain anything. It's difficult to distinguish the wheat from the chaff in this area. I agree with that. It's the nature of the field, because culture is sort of by nature an interpretive field. I agree with that. Nonetheless, it's possible, I think, to distinguish a, a convincing interpretation from an unconvincing interpretation. This is what we do in intellectual activity in general, right? Ultimately, we have faith that we can distinguish good reasoning from bad, even though you can't prove it, you know, with certainty. So this is what I'm trying to do here. Okay. Yes. Thank you.
Yeah, I, I, I use the analogy of ecosystems. You know, sometimes you can transplant an organism into another ecosystem. It actually thrives and improves the balance and make the ecosystem, you know, more resilient. And other times you can transplant, you know, some DNA to an ecosystem that's destructive and takes over or whatever. I think it's the same with cultures. You know, sometimes you can transplant ideas from other cultures, but they must fit into the system. They must make sense in the ecosystem balance of the culture before they can, can make the culture more resilient. So, uh, yes, I think, you know, but this is not homogenization, right? It's just sharing strategically chosen ideas, which cultures have been doing for a long time. Let's follow up to the last question. Uh, what is it which China added to its own culture or adapted from Western culture in order to make the fall? For hundreds of years it seems to be fall. Now suddenly it's like did it have to did it rely entirely on its own cultural advantages? Or did it have to adapt or adopt some place, as the last thing suggested, from Western culture? Yeah, I think. Yeah, actually, the Chinese have had several periods of growth and prosperity in their long history, not just the recent one. In fact, you know, it, it appears that way to us because the 19th century was really a nadir in the 5,000-year, you know, Chinese chronicle. Uh, so it appears as though the Chinese have risen from the ashes. Well, they, they did in a sense, but it was, a, you know, it was a very powerful empire and economy in the past. So why the recent growth? Well, I think partly because the, the colonialists got out, and I helped a lot. Okay, they got out of the way. And uh, as, beyond that, I think, you know, there was political turmoil, right, in China following, you know, the collapse of the dynasty and so forth. And they went through Mao and finally sort of, you know, through Deng Xiaoping, worked that out. They worked, you know, they got back into their, their stride, finally, politically, and sort of made an environment where their traditional means of, of commerce were possible. That's the way I would put it in a nutshell, I guess. Sort of working themselves back into their own stride. Okay, yes, and then you're back. My name is Yang Lo Yu. Right. 
while very insightful, you didn't take enough attention to the learning part of all these economic policies. That's why I think it's, uh, your uh, speech is a little bit lopsidedly. So you sort of then look like, looking like a post hoc explanation. And I think that this story can lead to another solution for development in, in, uh, in Africa. Why do you think that in um, Zimbabwe people want to be Western or whatever? But Africa is the only one continent I have ever been to where they always say they, are, they have a very defensive approach. They don't have learn from others who made it, but they always say we are different. So the thing is that if we, for example, I have to say we are looking poorer than Kenya, any other African country in 1962, Korea's GDP per capita was $67. Kenya's GDP per capita was $72. In 1971, Zimbabwe's GDP per capita was $620. Korea's GDP per capita was $300. I point out that one thing that we are different, but what all the countries which have ever made in the history, whether it's Europe or America or Asia, they are the ones who try to learn from something from others. And they can also try to sort of like the finally. So I think that is sort of one point I really strongly uh, emphasize that you should have sort of talked about this kind of the learning experience plus why we are not. We don't have the universal, but we can have some more negative of some democracy, institutions, and other things, where or others have sort of evolved in terms of human culture, uh, not only Western culture. I think I'm better than Professor Hooker answer. I couldn't agree more, absolutely. This is why I emphasize the fact that Western manufacturing has learned so much from Japanese culture. We went out there and learned something from them. You know, there were, uh, when the Japanese became strong in manufacturing, Northwest Airlines established so-called auto-executive flights from Detroit to Tokyo, just full of auto-executives going over to Japan to learn about what these guys were doing. Of course, cultures depend on borrowing ideas from other cultures to succeed. Absolutely. Another good example of that is W.E. Deming, the American quality control expert who went to Japan, became a big hero in Japan. They have a Deming Prize over there to honor people who are good at operations management. So, but in the process of expropriating, of using Deming's ideas, the Japanese actually developed their own cultural approach. They adapted the ideas to their own cultural situation, and the result was Toyota. So I couldn't agree more with what you're saying. My name is Dr. Mantra, I'm Mr. Putnam. I can see that India, China, Korea have prospered, but very economic boom now. I can see that that culture is different from you. What I can't see is what the connection Does it automatically follow that because the culture is different that they have succeeded, or that culture has to have, have, have a role in this success. Because the India was not very rich, it was very, very bad. <coughs> China had very high rates of inflation. When these countries were not successful, they also had the same culture. And there are other countries now which have a different cultures, which tomorrow might become very rich. And that time we will say, oh, well, their culture is different and their provision. I don't understand the connection. 
perfection. How do you draw the perfection from just mere factual difference? Yes, so um, the way you have to do it is to look at the details. Look at each culture in detail. See how the economy is working. This is why I went through the first two-thirds of the talk, right? I talked about Japan, the, the role of group interaction, you know, the role of long-term perspective and so forth. So I was trying to show that certain indigenous cultural traits have a key role in the economic success and actually draw the causational arrow there. So this is what you have to do, I think. And that's the case I tried to make. I think I really must just take one more question. Thanks, sir. Uh, Tyler, come to a question you mentioned in Turkey. Uh, I see that most of the people are uh, critical of your opinions, but I agree with you about all your opinions because uh, I want to give an example from the Ottoman Empire, the modernization of the Ottoman Turkish Empire. And if you look at the Ottoman Empire, you see that the culture always matters because uh, the Ottoman Turkey. Pleased to agree, but a very important part of Western culture is to take issue with the speaker, and I'm glad to see we've done that. Yeah, thanks very much. What I'd just like to thank him, Professor Hooker, say he's demonstrated a tremendously wide knowledge. I feel I've really learned an awful lot, which reflects his having lived in quite a number of these countries and actually become very knowledgeable. And I, I do feel quite strongly that this is a sort of thing that place like LSE should be doing with a, a many, many cultures actually represented among the student and the, the, student and the staff body and um, I'm hoping that we can emulate what some of the things that he does at Carnegie Mellon in, in the management school in particular, um, telling students how helping them with business in different cultures, which I think is becoming increasingly... I, I'm going to resist actually talking too much and asking all the questions I wanted to ask 
so I will stop. I will just mention again that um, Professor um, Hooker did mention his, um, the, uh, the use of the World Wide Web, which is obviously, I would um, suggest that you actually look at his website. There's a lot of useful information on his website, and I, find, I think you will find that extremely valuable. So I'd like to thank him again for an extremely stimulating and educational talk. Thank you very much.